Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Last Train Home by the Moderns, an Akron rockabilly group. And that was the fire. <laughs> there are featured Ohio musical artists tonight, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We're going to tell you a little bit more about them, where to see them perform, and let you hear the rest of that song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. We have plenty of logs Literally. on the fire right now. All right. <laughs> I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Be careful now. That, that fire's popping. <coughs> Told you. Fire. Steve, one of my all-time favorite Ohio mysteries was the great UFO chase. You remember when we did that one last year? Not only your favorite, but there's a lot of listeners who say it's their favorite. Yeah, we have, uh, we're sitting around a campfire here with some family members, and they're pointing to themselves because it's their favorite, too. That That was the story where these lawmen from Northeast Ohio chased an erratically behaving saucer shaped object in the sky all the way into Pennsylvania. And we did that episode last Halloween. Yes. And so we are kind of recreating the mood today. It's a beautiful fall evening. We are literally sitting around the campfire. If you hear the wind rustling through the trees, that's real. Uh, Because we have another UFO story. Oh, great. Yeah, a really good one. We're missing the tinfoil hats from last year, though. We are. Our, Our people got a little lazy this year. but Or maybe they're just not scared anymore. Maybe not. Yeah. So... Earlier this year, Newsweek analyzed 25 popular UFO sightings in history, including one from Ohio that is known as the Coin Mansfield Helicopter Incident. The Coin Mansfield Helicopter Incident. Yeah, Coin is the name of a guy, Mansfield's the name of the city, uh, and helicopter is what they were in when it happened. And Mansfield, okay. Mansfield was the name of the city, Mansfield's though. Mansfield's the, the name of the city, <laughs> yes. So, now, the Newsweek list was scored using a point system. For instance, points were given for having authoritative witnesses or video, 
points were taken away if the military was able to discredit the sighting in some way. Which they always do. Which they always do. Right. Almost always. That's true. Yeah, Almost we don't always. hear this one. Okay. So to put the Coin Mansfield helicopter incident into perspective, the famous Roswell incident where the dead aliens were believed to be recovered and taken to Hangar 18 in Dayton, Ohio. Right, Patterson Air Force Base. Which was another one of our episodes. Yep. That earned a credibility rating of minus two. Boo. Okay. Boo. The coin affair earned a four. Oh, wow. No incident on American soil earned a higher rating. Yeah, I've never heard That's of this. That's how impressive this tale is. Huh. You're going to be shocked because, yeah, I hadn't either. This is really good stuff. So let's get to the good stuff. We're going to go to the evening of October 18, 1973. And a four-man crew of the U.S. Army Reserve boards a UH-1H helicopter in Columbus bound for their home base at Cleveland Hopkins Airport. Is that the helicopter they would refer to as the Huey? Oh, that's a good question. I have no idea. Me neither, but... There's an H in there. I wanted to sound important. Okay. Okay. All right. (laughs) This is going to be a 96-mile journey. So picture this cabin in your mind so you understand where everybody's at. Uh, In command, in the right front seat, is Captain Lawrence Coyne. He's 36 years old. He's got 19 years of flying experience. To his left is First Lieutenant Arrigo Jezzy. He's 26, he's a chemical engineer, and Jesse has control of the chopper. Now, behind Jesse is Sergeant John Healy. He's 35 years old, he's a Cleveland policeman, and he's the flight mechanic. And behind Coyne is the crew chief, Sergeant Robert Janicek, a 23-year-old computer technician. Now, it's a starry night. It's clear and calm. There's a quarter moon rising. And the helicopter is cruising at 2,500 feet above sea level at a speed of 90 knots, carrying its crew over hills, woods, and rolling farmlands. And just before 11 p.m., about 10 miles south of Mansfield, Ohio, in an area by Charles Mill Lake, Healy notices this red light on the horizon to the southeast. He figures eh, it's either a radio tower beacon or maybe an aircraft wing light. Okay. He stares at it a good one to two minutes, trying to figure it out. Finally, he calls Captain Coyne's attention to it. Coyne, he's relaxed. He's sitting in his seat. He's smoking a cigarette. He takes a look. He thinks it's just some distant air traffic, but he tells Janacek, yeah, keep an eye on it just in case. 30 seconds later... Janchek announces this light has turned toward their helicopter and is on a direct collision course with them. Captain Coyne, he looks at it, he agrees with this assessment. Coyne grabs the controls from Jesse, puts the UH-1H into a descent about 500 feet per minute. At the same time, he's calling the radio tower in Mansfield. He's wondering if the light might belong to an Air National Guard F-100 from Mansfield. The tower acknowledges the call. This is Mansfield Tower. Go ahead, Army 15444. And then radio silence. Jesse tries to call the tower again using both UHF and VHF frequencies. 
but he can get no response from Mansfield. As a matter of fact, an investigation later is going to show that the original contact won't even show up in the tapes of communication that night. Notably, we will also learn that the last F-100 had landed in Mansfield that night at 10.47 p.m. That's a full 15 minutes before the helicopter's encounter. So they're done with the airfield in Mansfield when this is taking place. Before they even see the light the first time. Exactly. So the crew of the chopper, they're watching this red light as it's continuing directly toward them. Coin descends even more. He reaches 1,700 feet the, the last time he checks his altimeter. But the light seems like a missile that's locked onto them. Major Coin would later report, it looked like we were going to collide with it, and we braced for impact. And then I heard the crewman in the back say, look up. And I observed this craft stop directly in front of us, stopped. It was hovering right over the helicopter. Coyne said the crew initially pondered whether they were seeing some sort of high-performance fighter. But when the craft got close enough that they could see it, well, it wasn't anything like they had seen before. It was gray and metallic, shaped like a cigar, but with a slight domed shape on the top. It was featureless, but for the red light emanating from the bow, although Janicek reported he thought there was a suggestion of windows along the top dome section. Suggestion, meaning maybe they can see out? Meaning he couldn't quite see it because of the way it was silhouetted against the starry night, but he thought there might have been windows there. Now, they said it was about 60 feet long, 20 feet high, They saw no wings and no vertical or horizontal stabilizer. As Coyne and his crew stared in disbelief, they saw a green beam come out from below the object. It was shaped like a pyramid and acted like a directional spotlight. The green beam passed over the helicopter nose, swung up through the windshield, and scanned the interior of the chopper. So they're still 1,700 feet or so. 1,700 feet. And they're getting scanned. Yes. Like a barcode. So Coyne describes this like a barcode, yeah. Right. So Coyne's describing this to a reporter back in 75. He says, it was a bright green light, and all of the red night lights that we utilize for night navigation were dissolved in this green light. The whole cabin turned green. It hit all of us directly in the face. I guess that's better than being probed from the other side. (laughs) Probably. And then, scientifically, maybe the strangest of all, you'll recall I said Coyne had maneuvered the helicopter closer to the ground to escape collision, and he noted that they were at about 1,700 feet when the UFO intercepted them. Well, when the UFO was done with that brief green light scan, it turned and moved slowly off to the west without another incident. And that's when Coyne, who was worried that he might still be descending, looked at his altimeter and learned that the helicopter at that moment was at 3,500 feet. They had gone from 1,700 feet to 3,500 feet in a matter of seconds. None of the crew had felt it. And Coyne told the crew, 
I think they pulled us up. Yeah, you would think you would notice that. You would think. Now, the helicopter, it was still climbing for a little bit. It topped out at 3,800 feet. The four men felt a bump, like turbulence, after which Coyne finally had control of the aircraft again. Okay, so he really doesn't feel like he has control of it. It's They're moving upwards. He felt as if somebody else had had control like of it. Like, beam me up, Scotty. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that after the craft had moved away from them, the ascension stopped and he got the control back. Gotcha. Now, the whole encounter lasted maybe about 10 to 15 seconds, okay? Uh, When he got control of the aircraft again, he went back down to 2,500 feet. He was able to make contact with the radio tower at the Canton-Akron airport, and they just continued on to Cleveland. I mean, what else are you going to do? you got to carry on. Right. So the crew watched this thing travel away. They said they saw the white tail light. It traveled for a couple minutes. It turned about 45 degrees to the right, and it headed off in the direction of Lake Erie. They said the object made no noise and caused no turbulence. Korn reported, and these are his words, as far as the vehicle itself, there's no doubt in our minds what it looked like. A craft that can move at terrific speeds in excess of a thousand knots and then stop on a dime? To encounter a UFO when it approaches your aircraft, you have no idea what it is. I think if it wanted to collide with us, it could have. You can't get away from it. You don't have that much time to respond. It helped that the foreman grew, they had backup because it turns out there were eyewitnesses on the ground who saw the whole thing. Uh, they've seen the helicopter approaching the helicopter. They saw everything. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Not just seeing the craft. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, it really helped. Uh, three years after the incident, the Mansfield News Journal wrote about the case and asked for witnesses, and the DeLong family came forward. A woman they called Mrs. C., who apparently was this Irma DeLong, she was driving along with her children, Charles, Camille, and Kurt, and another family member. All of the the other family members were between the ages of 10 and 13 when she saw a single steady bright red light at her 2 o'clock position headed south at a speed she equated to a jet. She became aware there was a helicopter in the sky as well, and the red light looked to be on a collision course. Now, in 2015, the Mansfield News Journal revisited the story again. And then they turned up a Terry Hamilton, who said he was 15 years old, riding home from Huron with his father, when the pair witnessed a big ball of light come down from the sky, travel about three-quarters of a mile parallel to the road, and then move upward quickly until it was out of sight. I don't get the impression it was at this moment when the helicopter was encountering it. But he learned later it was the same night the Army Reserve helicopter had reported the near collision. Now, normally I would blow this off. Okay, it's a 14-year-old kid. He wants to get on in the act. Except Hamilton now works for the Ashland County Sheriff's Office. And he has investigated that old coin case through that office. And that's where he learned that the night that it happened, a woman had called the Ashland Sheriff's Office to report an object was hovering over the trees in her backyard. Hamilton said two deputies and an Ashland Times-Gazette photographer went to the woman's property, saw the object, and ended up ducking and crawling away in fear. 
Another prominent lady in town saw the same thing out her back window, Hamilton said. And here's a quote from him. She said she saw a saucer floating toward her house and she got on her knees and started praying. She thought it was the end of the world. Now, back in 1973, the army did not try to silence Coyne and his crew from speaking about it. As a matter of fact, Coyne even testified about the incident to the United Nations in 1978. Now, if you read a lot of UFO stories, you know this isn't the only time conventional aircraft have reported a strange encounter in the sky. The difference is that most won't talk about it publicly. In 1999, a place was created for these pilots and air traffic controllers to go and report unusual sightings confidentially. It's called the National Aviation Reporting Center on Anomalous Phenomena. Say that three times real fast. Yeah, I'm good. (laughs) Yeah. And it was founded by a retired NASA scientist named Richard Haynes. Haynes said he gets about a dozen reports a year, and the point is purely scientific. They want to understand phenomena in the atmosphere with the hope of improving aviation safety. So in most cases, they figure out what it is that these people have seen. But Haynes told a reporter that he was always impressed with the coin helicopter incident. It's extremely rare for some sort of phenomenon to convince an entire crew that it needed to dive to get out of its way. A couple of years ago, Haynes told the Huffington Post, I think the coin case ranks very, very high in credibility. One reason is Coyne's reputation as a good pilot before this happened. And his courage, the fact that he was willing to come forward with this very bizarre story and to stand by it through the years, it says an awful lot. It does. It does. If you think about all the the police from the last one where they kind of ruined their lives. When you find out, yeah, it did. Right. And Coyne, to his dying day, he defended what had happened here. And his crew did. They stuck by their story. And Haynes, he he hoped that would give encouragement to other pilots to do the same. He said, if everybody remains silent, we're never going to get to the bottom of this. That's interesting. So, Steve, we've got uh, three armchair detectives here. So, Barb, what do you think? Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm believing this one. What do you think he saw? I mean, maybe he saw something that was still man-made. I mean, UFO just means unidentified flying object. Or do you go as far as to think there was something extraterrestrial about what he saw? The only other thing it could be would be that it was made by our own Air Force, maybe. Now, I got to tell you, I found a website of skeptics and there was a very convincing idea this guy had really done his homework clearly he must have been a pilot he did graphs and charts and and all of this and he believed what had happened 
was that there was a refueling jet in the area that was supposed to refuel a helicopter. So they had these, and he showed the picture of what this thing would look like. And it had wings, and it had stabilizers. It's cigar-shaped. But it was cigar-shaped, and it had a dome on top. And his theory was this thing was out to refuel a helicopter, spotted that light in the, di- in the distance, thought it was their target, raced to it, pulled out the green light to look for the area where it was supposed to stick it, probe it. <laughs> and when it immediately realized that it had the wrong helicopter, turned and went off to go in search of another helicopter. Now, he had reasons why these lights worked for this story, why the speed worked for the story. He had a lot of really good explanations, but I keep coming to, my gosh, this thing made news. This was front page news. Why wouldn't these guys come forward and say, oh, that was us. We were, we were trying to refuel you before we realized it. And also, wouldn't you communicate? I mean, wouldn't you say, hey, you and the helicopter, we're here to refuel you. Right. Okay, we have another armchair detective here, Aaron, and it looks like you've got some thoughts on that. Okay, so I don't know if I believe in UFOs. I do think it's the possibility um, is endless because I don't think we're alone, but I don't know if they're coming here to visit. <laughs> I really think that would be interesting. But I do think that it's odd that the military would be refueling at night I, especially at, at that time in those in like the 70s, I think it's very odd because it would be very dangerous even now for the military to fuel something at night. But to do it in the 70s would be even harder, close to impossible, even on a starry night. Like nothing I've ever read or my dad, who was a paratrooper, ever talked about were them refueling at night. So I find that a little hard to believe, and I think that guy wants to be a skeptic just to be a skeptic. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't make sense for the 70s, you know, for the right. refueling. It just doesn't. So, do you, you absolutely believe in extraterrestrials, like you said? No. I said, I think there's a possibility of something more. I don't uh, know what that is. Okay. But I do think it's very odd. I think that is a distinct possibility. I don't think it's something from our military because our military loves the show. No, actually, they would keep stuff quiet if it was a, a test object. You know, like if it was a test ship. Have you ever seen anything in the sky that was unexplained? No. No? Okay. No. You were never visited by any green men or anything? Well, that's not important. But what... <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, I was young once. It seems to me that Steve knows something we don't know. <laughs> Tell us about the green men. Oh, I can't talk about that. <laughs> I, I guess the thing, I was very impressed with his skeptics page. I mean, he had gone to a lot of effort, and a lot of it sounded really good. Uh, there is just no explanation to me of a lack of communication, why you wouldn't communicate with that helicopter and why you wouldn't later come forth and say, oh, you can stop the front page headlines, that was us. You know. Well, let's talk about this. This is supposed to be one of the most credible stories in UFO history. Yet yes. Nobody hears about it unless you do specific okay, there's research. A, there's an entirely different mystery. Why isn't this right? Why isn't as this well known news? as you know Roswell. Roswell or something? Yeah. But yeah. why would they want it to be like if it's our military? I think 
that, uh, what is that from Men in Black? This is a perfect quote, okay, seriously. From Men in Black, a person is smart, people are dumb. And I think that some people take it to next level and they would freak out. Like, I think that they probably thought the public couldn't handle it and still can't. And so they, I mean, look at that whole Facebook thing where they were going to go to Area 51. There was like 500,000 people were going to storm Area 51, you know? And, and for what? Except, in this case, the Army didn't shut them up. But that's different than the Air Force. They yeah. are different branches of the military. And the thing with the Army is, is that I just really don't think that there was a refueling helicopter in the night sky going to refuel in the 70s at night. I just no, that I don't just, think it was refueling. And that I so weird. don't believe the pilot just because he was in the military. Like, I know that's supposed to lend credence, but, you know, they are... Most military is very rigid, and they have a certain thought process and the way that they do They're very disciplined. But the reason why I think so is because I there's not a ton of crazy pilots. Is anybody How many crazy pilots do you hear of? You right, know? right. Especially in those days. Hopefully not. <laughs> but then you have four guys that aren't crazy. You know, I'm sure they were tested extensively when they got back. They When they gave their stories, they were... All slightly different in some details, which really gets home to the point that two people can watch the same thing happen yeah, and walk normal. away. Actually, but that over, makes me believe them more. Yeah, because yeah, everybody, they weren't rehearsing right. anything. You and I could yeah. go through an experience together and we're going to have two different stories. Right. But if we lied about it, we would have the same exact story. Yeah. And their details, the details, that's another thing. Liars don't have a lot of detail. They keep it simple because they don't want people to know they're lying because they have to repeat the story over and over again. And you don't want to change it up every time. So people who are telling the truth tend to notice a lot more detail because they're, you know, they're telling you exactly what they saw or what they think they saw. Like Dwight Schrute from The Office, kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> Yeah, I, Steve, uh, I forgot where you land on the uh, on the not. question of UFOs. Do you, Same do you place in I do with aliens? ghosts. He doesn't believe. I don't believe it. So, do you like the idea of the refueling vehicle? I do like the. I look. I like the idea of it. Uh, I believe back in those times they could do it at night. Uh, it, uh, you know, if you ever see one of those refueling, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture. Go ahead and Google it, everybody out there. But those things are cigar-shaped. They are about 60, you know, 60 feet. They're, they're, or they're probably a little bit bigger than that, absolutely. But they're, they're a big aircraft, you know, and they... They could refuel planes, but helicopters yeah, are different. Yeah, that's the only thing that, that bothers me is I never heard of a refueling a helicopter, they did. but obviously they did. they did. They did them in the war. They were well, why experts they, why at Why didn't it? they do it when... Before they took off. Well, good point. Really You're leaving close. Columbus. You've only made it to yeah. Mansfield. Well, wait a minute. Okay, they they, they got the, the wrong. They, they weren't, weren't the, the target. target. They got the wrong plane. But is it this true of any helicopter? I mean, what's the longest distance? I mean, you're not going to send a helicopter from New York to Los Angeles, and you need to refuel it along the um, way. Unless it's Air Force One or with the helicopter that the president uses. Would they take it cross country? No. It's and Nick, have to refuel it be, in the was sky. It Nixon, Nixon, guy? Nixon would do some weird stuff. Come on. I don't know. <laughs> I just don't. I don't quite get why a helicopter needs to be refueled in air. 
I don't training exercise. Uh, the radio, the radio in the helicopter was going wonky. That's why. That was the other weird thing. That's why thing. the base couldn't connect with them, so they couldn't connect with the refueling airplane either. But yeah. the whole thing was missing. But after that plane left, they were able to contact Akron Canton, or I should say Canton Akron. <laughs> I wonder <laughs> if there was any kind right. of interference with the aircraft. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know. Bouncing off that I'm open-minded. I don't yeah, know. It's a, really hard for me to believe that, you know, almost a century of UFO sightings and we don't have any definitive thing that we can all agree on. I would think in that time something would be revealed that we could all agree on. But I'm super open-minded. The Roswell episode is creepy to me. Hangar 18, you know, you've got military people who work there who have come out and talked about what they saw there, including living aliens. Uh, it's not uh, impossible. I wouldn't, uh, listen, yeah. I really wouldn't be super surprised if that was happening. It, you know, wouldn't be a huge shock to me. I'm a huge NASA fan, huge astronaut fan, and think most astronauts actually believe in extraterrestrials and UFOs too. So, yeah, there you go. Well, there you go. We could. We haven't quite changed your mind yet, but this is our third uh, <laughs> alien-related episode. Maybe we're on our way. Right. And, you know, if you're out there, UFO, go ahead and visit me. Make me a believer. Yes. I'm ready for you. We're Please ready. don't visit when I'm there. Leave the probe at don't, home. Don't yep. probe me. Yeah. Well, I didn't green, believe it. The you green light, learned. yes. The green light, yes. I didn't believe in that stuff either the first time we did a podcast on UFO. Oh, I did. That story was like, wow. The great UFO chase but was such a good story. It's one of my ultimate was favorites. So great. Right. No, Wasn't there a truck that believe. said, like, Highway to Hell or something? Yes. Yeah. You got to love that. Was that truck that. Uh, in the vicinity of this? <laughs> if you haven't uh, listened to our episode on the great UFO chase, stop That's what you're doing. That's one of my doing. favorites. Listen to, our, listen to the song of our featured musical artist and then immediately go find that episode. And that's Paula rubbing on the laptop you're hearing? Oh, I'm sorry. Can you hear <laughs> that? <laughs> People are going, that's oh. That's not that connected. There's a the UFO probe. hovering above Paula there. That's <laughs> not the probe. I want to believe it. I want to believe yeah. it so much. I believe in ghosts because I lived with one for about 10 years. I remember those stories you used to tell me yes. about the, yes. uh, about the coffee cup. Knocking on the wall. And if people told me that, I, I, I would be doubtful. He used to but have I this rack that had coffee cups on it. And he said that it would just knock. And then it would stop. Knock against the wall. Yeah. yeah. And I would push it hard enough for it to swing one time and hit the wall. But it was too heavy to hit it again. To keep you know? doing it. But they would sit there and keep knocking on it, you know. I like the way you put that, though, Tom. That's what I want to say. I want to believe. Yeah. I want to believe. Well, I believe in ghosts because of that. I believe in ghosts, I, too. I've seen her. I've I believe in ghosts, too. people come in my house and ask me who that was. And chase it. Yeah. You had somebody come in the house and actually chase it around the wow. house. I asked my son when we moved in there, have you ever noticed anything about this house? He says, the ghost? I said, you saw? <laughs> yes, I did that. <laughs> yeah, if, if you experience it, you know it's hard I, to convince other people. I just think there's UFOs, more. Out there. I want to believe it. I want to believe it so much, you know. Yeah. And that would be Matthew. Matthew. Yeah. Oh yes, Matthew, who uh, actually donated some equipment to us too. Thank you very Matthew much. Matthew, who yeah. makes bombs for us now. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, uh, he better not believe in UFOs. I, I just think that the possible there are so many things we don't know in this world. 
And if you look at the pyramids all over the place and that there's just so many different amazing things that are in this world, things we don't know, bottom of the ocean kind of stuff, Atlantis, all of that. You don't know what you don't know. Well, that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist, the Moderns, as they call themselves. Their style of music is rockabilly, surf, Americana, and cowpunk. You know, I can use a little more cowpunk in my life. Yeah, I could use some more cowpunk. Yeah. The Moderns are from Akron. Akron, Yay, Akron. nice. And they're a trio. Bert Franco on guitar, Nick Frank on drums, and Mike Snow on bass. Go find them on Facebook and give them a follow. Now, the Moderns just formed a couple of years ago, and this past June, they released their self-titled debut EP, featuring some high-energy, swampy originals, and their take on the J.R. Cash original, Big River. They also plan on releasing a full-length album next year. Where did you get the adjective, swampy? They gave it to me. Oh, okay. Swampy originals. <laughs> That's part of the cowpunk theme. At the start of the podcast, we played a clip of their song, Last Train Home. Here's the rest of that song. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. There's a train that drives On down the Arizona line It pushes through skies of crimson and blue And rides into that fading sunset And oh, oh, here we go The only place that I belong And oh, oh, so you're on your own I won't be on that last train home Stories about us tell There's a long history Of misery And this time we have Come back I've been chasing ghosts I've just never been This close I've been counting down Through passing towns And hearing her voice Bring across in bells That all Here we go Place it out of her home. Oh, oh, so you're on your own. I won't be on that last train home. Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, 
a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.